Father, we understand the superiority of your spirit, which we covered last week, and how he is the third person of the Trinity, equal to you in essence, and subservient to your Son and to you. And Father, you are the one who originates all things. And we recognize you as the Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the God of the burning bush. And we honor you for the salvation which you have brought to us and through all throughout the ages. We ask that you would continue to enlighten us as to what your word says. Give us the information that we need to know in the day, for the days in which we live are evil, that we might conduct ourselves in a way that is holy and pleasing to you. We thank you for the insight and wisdom that you have provided through your word, and we pray that you would make it alive for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we covered in verses 1 through 3 the fact that there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, Menaean, all of those guys were there. They were prophets in the church. And then the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. And so after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this is a record of Paul's first missionary journey. Now, when you talk about something like that, it's hard to visualize. Well, what's going on? I remember having geography with Mr. Jones in seventh grade. And he would give us maps and he would tell us to take them home and color them in and put on the capitals of these countries or the states. And we would go through the whole world. And I, I just really liked the class. I enjoyed listening to him. And I'm kind of familiar with the, um, the countries that are around the world. Not, not completely, but I think I have a good grasp on those. And today I don't think that we have as much of a grasp as we did when we were younger. Um, I, I saw this little video of a man. He was going, um, I think it was up to Santa Monica, and he was on the pier up there, and he was interviewing people. You guys have seen the Man on the Street interviews, right, where they have a microphone, and they ask him questions, and they see how they respond. I always love watching those because it gives me a feel for where the next generation is. Well, he started interviewing uh, these women who were going to UCLA, now, to go to UCLA, you have to kind of know your stuff and pass all the tests and uh, your SAT scores have to be just right and get in. And so this guy was starting to ask questions. Two questions he asked. One was, what is the name of the ocean on the east coast of the United States? Not one of the students got it. They would say, the Pacific is what they would say. An even simpler question was asked of these university students. The question was, what is two plus two times one? They didn't get it. They could not answer that simple question. There were several others like that, and I felt depressed because they go, oh, I don't know. I'm so embarrassed. Oh, they don't, and they would go off like, oh, it's, I know I should know this, but I don't know this. And these are the future leaders of the world. You're going to UCLA. You're supposed to be a future leader of the world. And, and so I'm kind of concerned that we, we're having a generation coming in behind us that just doesn't know anything, especially about history, 
especially about civics, especially about geography, especially about the, the world of politics, all of those things. And we have to be aware of what's going on. So when it comes to Paul's missionary journey, now you come here to find out, well, what does the Bible exactly say? And you do your own study, and that's good. And I think most of you are pretty much up on the Middle East and kind of the way it's laid out there. But Daryl, you have that picture. Could you throw that up there, please? This is Paul's first missionary journey. Now, this is the Mediterranean area. And what you're looking at here, if on the lower right-hand side you have Israel, you can probably see Jerusalem. It's kind of small on there. And above that, you have Tyre and Sidon. And if you keep going up, you will see Antioch. Now, that is where the church moved to after the persecution that began with the Apostle Paul and Stephen. That's where the basis of the church went, was to Antioch. From there, Paul went on the first missionary journey, and he went over to the island of Cyprus. Apparently, he went through the island to the other side and then set off to what we know as Turkey. Turkey is directly above. You see that arrow that goes up towards Turkey? That whole area of Asia and Galatia and Cappadocia, that is modern-day Turkey. The church of Ephesus is up there. If you ever go to Turkey, you could get to Ephesus. And that's where Timothy was the pastor up there. And so he made this loop. Now, there is Antioch in Syria and Antioch Pisidia. Antioch Pisidia is up, you can see it mostly north right there. And Paul went from there to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby. And so he made this round, he made this loop, and then he reversed it and he came back. So it was him and Barnabas that were called by the Holy Spirit to go on this missionary journey. Now, as he would go there, there would be the Jews and there would also be Gentile God-fearers, people who were Greeks and of other nationalities that they believed in the Hebrew God and they were observant Gentiles is what they would be. And so Paul made his track up and down. And when he gets to the synagogue, one of the synagogues there, he addresses the Jews and those who fear God. And we'll see that in the text. He does that at least twice. Now, when we get to this section here in Turkey, uh, down below where they got onto the land down there by Perga, there's a, a section of that area called Pamphylia, and that it's about 20 miles long, and it's not very wide, and it sits at the base of the Tarsus Mountains, and it goes up about 3,000 feet. And it's a, probably an arduous task to go up. It's this, about the same elevation change as it is from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's about the same distance. But that road was a perilous road. There would be a lot of robbers and thieves. Oh, robbers and thieves, that's redundant. There would be robbers and murderers and people of ill repute that would be on that road that goes down to Jericho. By the way, just as a side note, First time we went to Israel, Patty and I, we got on a bus. And the bus was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And the road at that time, it was a single lane road going down. I remember sitting in the bus going around this windy, very windy road, single wide, and seeing another bus coming. I saw it coming. This is great. And then as I look to my left, over the side. You know how a bus can get, ne- and it's a sheer drop off. You know how a bus can get next to the side and you can't see the dirt. All you can see is the valley. All I did was start praying. 
You know, because you, you start going around and you're going, I cannot see the dirt. I am so hanging. I, I'm sure the dually on the back, one tire was probably hanging over and the other one was just barely on the road because this other bus was coming and we had to get our, it was just like, oh, they've changed that roadway, by the way. So when we go there, it's a freeway going down there. But back then, and, and then they told the people in the bus, do not take pictures of any shepherds or shepherdesses that you see going along this road. What did they do? People started bringing out their... Back, back then we had these things called cameras. And, and you'd hold them up to the window and you could see in the window and they would see that their picture's being taken. This shepherdess, she's in her 20s, she picks up this huge rock and she gets ready to throw it in everybody in the bus and stop taking pictures, you know, of the people. Unless you ask them, you weren't supposed to be taking pictures. And so that's just a side note to what's going on here. But getting back, it's a 3,000 foot elevation change going up there. And John Mark, in some version, it gives the full name John Mark. I think in the NIV, it just refers to Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas, and Barnabas brought him along. And when they got to this area, Panphila, down there, along the coast that's about 20 miles and maybe about 5 miles wide, it is John Mark that abandoned Barnabas and Paul, or Saul. He said, I'm out of here. He left. And, of course, we know that later this created a, a big riff between Barnabas and uh, Paul and Barnabas ended up going with John Mark and Paul ended up going with Silas on another missionary adventure. And, and so there was problems here and we're going to read about that. Now in verse 4, I'm just going to pick it up there so you have the background. And by the way, as you look at that map on the left-hand side where it says Macedonia and um, Achaia, those uh, places there are now considered modern-day Greece. So that's Greece, and then you have Turkey, which is Asia, Asia Minor, that is there. And below that, you would have uh, Africa going down. Now, verse 4, it says, The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God to the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper, and this is John Mark. In Acts chapter 13, verse 6, it says, They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Whenever you see Bar, it means son of. So this is the false prophet, Elimus, Bar-Jesus who was the attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So he was trying to keep the governor from believing. That's what he was doing. Now, he's a sorcerer. And so if you know anything about the magicians from the Old Testament, they could do some real stuff like turn sticks into snakes, things like that, turn water into blood, they could do that. I don't know about you. Did you guys ever have one of those chemistry sets, you know, when you were growing up? I remember we, let's put them all together and see what happens, and you get this cloudy thing inside the middle of the little water bowl that you're working with, and you didn't know if you're going to blow up something. We could have killed ourselves with that stuff. But back then, they could do real demonic stuff. Now, can that happen today? I, th- I think it can. We don't see it as much, and sometimes we might get fooled into thinking that it is. But back then, Elimus, he was truly a sorcerer. And so this guy 
was the individual that just wanted to stop Sergius Paulus from believing. Now, do you have somebody in your life that is an Eliamus, that is a sorcerer, that wants to keep you from believing, that has ridiculed you, saying, don't open up your mind so much that it falls out, you know, and you would tell them, open up your mind a little more so you might believe, and they're so restricted and they want to keep anybody else from believing. Are you familiar with the author Lee Strobel? Remember him? Now, this guy, he's smart. He is a smart guy. He, was a high, he is a highly acclaimed author. He wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. He was a professor. He went to Yale Law School. And he was an atheist. And before he found his faith, he set out to dissuade his wife from following Jesus because she was on a spiritual journey. She went to him. Her name is Leslie. She went to him and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to choose to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he just went ballistic. And this is what he wrote. He said, I thought, you know, this was the worst possible news I could get, he explained. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who was going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. That's what he thought. And his wife didn't change. She didn't pull back from that. But she invited him to church. And so he thought, well, he would go to church. And he says... He writes this, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, and the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, and it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day mainly to see if I could get her out of this cult she had gotten involved in. Now, Patty and I, when we took a trip uh, to the Midwest and we, we did a road trip, we listened to The Case for Christ and they made a movie about him. It's a good movie. You can watch it. And he used to work for the Chicago Tribune. He was a journalist there, a legal journalist. And so he set out to disprove the Bible, that he was going to show his wife that this was completely false. And after the service, he said he walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. So that's what he wrote. To make a long story short, he, he went to forensic, uh, I don't know if they call them archaeologists, you know, they, he reconstructed for Lee Strobel the idea of the crucifixion and maybe he didn't die and he went through all of that stuff and he ended up being convinced that the testimony in the Bible was true. He is now a teaching pastor and he puts on a, a radio program and he is, um, uh, his program is called faith under fire he is a defender of the faith he's an apologist and he used to be i think he still is a teaching pastor in some different churches very smart guy he has several good books if you can ever pick them up so he was going to be the alliamus for his wife that his wife would eventually come out because how could she possibly believe that this is true and when it comes to evidence, you know, he checked out the evidence. Let me give you just a, a rundown of the type of evidence we have. We have manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence that we have is better than it is for any other ancient work or work of antiquity that is in our possession. Homer's Iliad is the one that comes closest to that. And the first copies were made 500 years after Homer's Iliad was written. The New Testament, 25 years after the original autographs were made, we have copies. Up to 5,000 copies 
of the originals and it, you have additional copies and fragments, 25,000 of them, and nothing comes close. So that's the manuscript evidence. There's historical evidence, past recorded events in history outside of the Bible that people have recorded that the Bible is witness to. There are recorded eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul also. Uh, extra biblical testimony there the jews if you were here on christmas eve i went through several of the accounts that people outside of christendom outside of christianity even in the jewish realm wrote about jesus christ there's archaeological evidence that you can look up people used to say that the city of dan doesn't exist well they found the city of dan they excavated and now there's more archaeological evidence than there was 50 years ago for the veracity of the new testament scriptures and also the old testament then there's prophetic evidence prophecies that have come true there's evidence from creation the laws that govern the universe you know if you go to any science class they will give you some laws if you go to mathematics class they will give you laws that govern mathematics if you go to geometry there are laws that govern geometry well Laws mean there is a law giver. Intelligence does not come from nothing. It has to be an individual, a mind that gives us the intelligence to understand laws which are out there. And if you just examine the universe, I mean, people are astrophysicists and they understand force equals mass times acceleration and E equals mc squared. They understand those types of laws which are out there. And that's how we can go to the moon. That's how we, Elon Musk can launch a rocket with a Tesla car in it and a dummy that's out there just going forever. Who knows where he's going to end up? That's how we do it is because of the laws. Then there's also personal testimonies which are out there. People whose lives have been changed. And that's not all of the evidence. It is just simply overwhelming. If somebody is questioning the truthfulness of the Bible or would like you to go through a deconversion process, just sit down with them and explore the available evidence. You can do that. And like I said, it is overwhelming. And I've said many times, and I've gone on this trek, that if the Bible is not true, I want to know it. If somebody has some evidence and they can present to me why the Bible isn't true, I haven't had anybody come up with any good evidence, not just because I'm blind, but and I, you've heard me say, a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or a Muslim, if you can convince me that your works, your religious works are correct, I'll become what you are. And then I always give them the alternative. If I'm right, you have to become a Christian. And it's always a wonderful challenge to see that. I haven't had one yet say, okay, you, I believe you, even though I've given them the evidence. They usually just want to argue. And so that's the type of person Eliamus is. Eliamus wants to take the individual who is seeking after Christ and say, no, don't believe, don't go there. And then in verse 9, it says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Eliamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Now, get this picture, what's going on. Elimus is there and he's interrupting the conversation and Paul gets exasperated. And Paul was a firecracker. You know, this Paul was somebody, he was probably shorter and balding and bony legs and couldn't see very well, but he was a fighter, so to speak. And he knew his scriptures and he knew the power of God. And so what he did is he turned to Elimus, looked him right in the eye. It was just like, 
poke your finger in the eye type thing. And he starts going off. He says, will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you and you are going to be blind for a time. You will be unable to see the light of the sun. Then he starts groping around. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord and didn't want to become blind himself. Oh, wait, I added that. It's the idea. He saw somebody be cursed right in front of him. It was a miracle. He's going, oh, this thing has to be true. I am not so much impressed by this miracle as I am impressed how far God went to get Sergius Paulus he got Paul saved he gets on this missionary adventure he talks to the Jews and he gets to this governor Sergius and he gives him the gospel and in order for Sergius to believe Elimus has to be blinded And God knew that. That's what it would take for him to believe. Now, what would it take for any of us to believe? It took me a little while. I was kind of like a three-strikes guy. I heard the gospel once. Give your life to the Lord. Yeah, I'm already already a Christian. I don't have to worry about that. Second time, walk forward. You need to walk forward. It was a thing in high school. And no, I'm not walking forward. I'm a Christian. Third time, that was it. I said, okay, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ and made that commitment. Well, what does it take for somebody to follow the Lord? How far would God have to go to grab you and get your attention? What would be necessary? Well, first we know from the book of Acts that he puts you with other people at a particular time so that you have the greatest opportunity to be saved. We already know that. And I believe we have free will in that. Certain things God dictates and certain things I believe we have free will in. I think that's called Molinism. It's kind of in between complete free will and determinism. uh, Where determinism is everything is set up by God. Even the atoms that move in the universe, he determines where each one will go. And the other one is God controls nothing. You have free will for everything. I think it's kind of in the middle. I think God has certain events that he puts into place. And then we also have free will. And so what would God have to do to convince you or I or somebody else? How many witnesses would have to come forward? How much evidence would there have to be? Well, let me set it up like this. I'm going to kind of give you a story here. Hope my uh, computer didn't die. Hold on. There we go. And as I give this story, I'm just going to talk about everyone from Adam through the Jews all the way up until now, and I'm going to substitute all of those people and us with just some pronouns. Not they and them and sis, but the pronouns will be you and we, that type of thing, and us. That's how I'm going to frame this little scenario. Okay, so pay attention here. So dad sets you up and lets you know what to do and what not to do. Of course, I'm referring to Adam and Eve, right? He leaves you for a little while and says, have fun, and then you make the biggest mistake of your life. Well, he lets you know when he comes back that it's going to be hard from here on out, and he leaves you with instruction. Again, he lets you know what you should do and what you should not do to benefit you and I for your own sake, that this is how it's going to turn out well for you. So 
In order to keep this going, the instruction that he's given, he grabs Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and puts them in charge to remind us of the obligations and responsibilities we have for maintaining a good life and how we might be saved, even though it's going to be hard. So he puts all those people up, and they're the ones that carry the message of God. Then, later, he sends Moses, who really doesn't want to go tell the people what they have to do and what they should avoid. And he sends Joshua after him. But after he's gone, the same mistakes are made. The people keep making the same mistakes over and over. Just read the book of Exodus. And after a long time, he sends some more people to set you and I back on the path, so to speak. He said, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Isban, Is, excuse me, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And of course, those are all the judges. Sent all of those people in order to instruct the Israelites what they should do and what they should avoid and how to be saved. And they listened for a little while, but with each one of those judges, they did right. Then they went into persecution. And after persecution, God raised up another judge and they had peace for the life of the judge. And then it turned back into freedom and persecution. It's just a cycle that kept on going on. And then he decided, well, I'm going to send some more people to make sure they know what they're supposed to do. So he sends Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah, King David, the rest of the kings. He sends to do good for the people. Most of them don't listen and they lead people down the wrong path. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is Israel. You had 19 kings up there. Southern kingdom had 20 kings down there. About 10 of the kings in the southern kingdom did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Up in the northern kingdom, not one of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, leading the people astray. And they wanted, the people wanted these types of kings being set up and they got into idolatry and it was just a real problem. So God says, I need to send more people to instruct them what to do. And so during these times where the kings came along and most of them did right or wrong, he instructed them through other prophets like Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Sent all of those guys as well. But that doesn't count all the companies of the prophets which were walking around as well. These are just the ones we have recorded. And then it gets to the New Testament. And who do you have? You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. You have all of those. Not to mention the Old Testament books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and I already gave you the uh, the prophets. All of these people he has sent, and they wrote books about this. They wrote letters and sent them out. Now, how much evidence has been accumulated so far? You have the, pers- you have the uh, personal testimonies of the individuals. You have the books of the Bible that have been written. How much would convince an individual that what the word has to say is true? But even after the entire New Testament has been written, people keep on getting it wrong. Especially in the book of Acts, you know, you have Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Altheus, Thaddeus, Judas, the son of James, Judas Iscariot, Matthias, 
Barnabas, Paul, Silas, Agabus, James, and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, Stephen, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, Quartus, Titus, seven different Marys, Philip the Evangelist and his four daughters, John, Mark, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Trophimus, Eubulus, Prudens, or Pudens, Linus, and Charlie Brown, and Claudia. No, Charlie Brown wasn't part of it. You, you see how many people are there mentioned in the New Testament? And that's not all of them. Those are just the names we have. And I haven't even gone to Hebrews chapter 11. The Hall of Faith, which is up there, and the testimony. Well, after all of this is written, you have people in the church that are coming up with bad doctrines, the Gnostics which are out there, the Arian heresy, all of that stuff is out there. So who does God send? Irenaeus, Polycarp, Ignatius, Papias, Jerome, Eusebius, Clement of Rome, Hermes, uh, Tatian, uh, also Ter- uh, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Cyprian, Dionysius, or Dionysius. All of those guys have come along. And that's the pre-Nicene fathers. Then there's Erasmus, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Zwingli, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Calvin, John Knox, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, Billy Graham, Elizabeth Elliot, Bill Bright, Tim LaHaye, John Walford, Chuck Smith. And that's not all of them. There are literally hundreds of thousands more that have testified, plus all the writings. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time which is out there. And somebody says, I don't believe it. How much does it take in order for someone to believe? What did it take for Sergius Paulus to believe? It took a miracle for him to believe. I would submit to you, you have a miracle before you. How many times did God say, I need to send somebody else. And right now there are witnesses around you that have witnessed to you. I can name the people who witnessed to me. I can name the, the couple that discipled me. They were sent all... He was a farmer in Illinois and came out here and I met him in a restaurant as a waiter. And he discipled me. And it just continues. So who are you trying to convince? We're supposed to continue this on. God wants us to reach the other people who are out there. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. So we have a testimony of what God did to reach not only Sergius Paulus, but all the other people in the book of Acts. And what a great testimony and so Paul he ends up preaching in Antioch of Pisidia and of course I believe people get saved there back in verse 13 from Paphos Paul went with his companions and sailed to Perga Pamphylia where John left them and returned to Jerusalem verse 14 from Perga then he went to Pisidian Antioch and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down now we don't know why John Mark left there's speculation about it it could be that the road may have been difficult going over the Tarsus Mountains. It could be that maybe he got sick with malaria because there were some low-lying areas there that would have had maybe uh, mosquitoes. That's what happened with uh, Israel. Above the Sea of Galilee, there was an area that was all marsh, and there was a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of sickness up there. They filled it in when they took over the land, and now it's a beautiful area up there. We don't know what kind of sharp disagreement happened between Paul and Barnabas. Paul, but Barnabas was originally the leader and then Paul ended up taking over. It could have been that John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, was a little jealous and said, why are you the leader now? It could have been. We don't know. We don't know exactly what transpired, but there was a sharp disagreement that is recorded in Acts chapter 15, which we will get to. And then Paul gives a message, a history lesson in verses 13, or excuse me, 15. 
It says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue ruler sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and said, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So both Jews and Gentiles were there. Now what he's going to do from this point is he's going to give a history lesson. And the reason he's going to give this history lesson is because there's going to be Gentiles in with them and he has to explain to them, and I'm going to fill in some of the um, history that's here that Paul doesn't give because I, I try to keep in mind who I speak to when I give a message or a sermon. And I think most of you know the history. I think you can recite it. But many don't know the history if you were not a jew you wouldn't understand necessarily everything about abraham isaac jacob and joseph and the patriarchs and all the prophets and the old testament you might have started to learn it but you would probably would have been ignorant about it so we have this history egypt and canaan and then judges and kings so Egypt, if you remember, Abraham was promised a land chosen by God because of his faith and for no other reason. It wasn't because he was more numerous than someone else. It wasn't because he was more special. He just said, I'm choosing Abraham and he's my man. And because he chose Abraham after that, we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they came to dwell in the land of Canaan. That's Israel, but it was the land of Canaan right there. And when Jacob was there, a famine hit. And of course, we already have the 12 sons and Joseph was sold down into Egypt. And of course, he went through his slavery with uh, Potiphar and thrown into prison. And he eventually rises to the greatest just below Pharaoh in the kingdom of Egypt. And his brothers come down and they want to buy grain. And so they're restored down there. I'm not going to go into too much detail. And when they went down there, it took 450 years for them to get back into the land, which we will read. And there were millions of them from just a a few hundred to millions over those 450 years. And the entire family went down to Egypt and God blessed them, multiplied them. But when they were going to go back into the land, when the 12 tribes were on the eastern side of the Jordan River there, they sent spies in. One of them was Joshua. The other one was Caleb. All the rest of them said, don't go there. There are giants in the land. Those giants in the land were Nephilim. You can read about this in the book of Numbers. There were Nephilim before the flood and there were Nephilim after the flood. Now, if I just say Nephilim, I think most of you know what Nephilim were. Nephilim were the offspring of fallen angels and earthly women. And what resulted from that were giants. They were big. If you do any kind of historical search on giants, and if you go into um, Greek mythology, there were the demigods, those who were the children of the gods. They were half human, half God, so to speak. Those children were big. They were huge. Remember um, Goliath. Goliath, like nine feet tall, and he was a short one compared to some that could have been out there. There are names for these guys, but they were called Rephaim, which means giants, and also Anakim, the sons of Anak, or long-necked ones. And I think I've told you this story before, but some of these, the American Indians here, they have legends of some of these big, tall, 
men that they would run with the buffalo. They were so big, they could pick up a buffalo as they're running, hold it under its arm, rip off a leg, throw the buffalo away, and eat the leg as they were running. That's how big they were. That, that is, a, I've listened to pastors talk about this, the legends that are out there. There are legends throughout history about giants which are out there. Now, these same giants were in the land, which means for this to happen, after the flood, the fallen angels had once again committed uh, an unholy act, sleeping with human women, and the children were born. And so Satan knew that he had 450 years after the flood time and after the moving of Abraham to raise up an ungodly generation in the land of Canaan. There were seven different kingdoms that were there, the Hittites and the Jebusites, and I'll name those later. But they were in the land, and Satan thought he could probably foil God's plan of bringing the Jews into the land because he promised to Abraham, well, put some giants in the land and have this union between these fallen angels and these women take place. Now, I need to give you a side note. There's a false doctrine out there that these are just the fallen line of Cain sleeping with the uh, daughters of Seth. That is complete false doctrine. All you have to do is dig into it. I firmly believe that these were fallen angels sleeping with the daughters of men and what resulted were giants in the land. And that's where we get our mythology of these giants going on. And, And so these seven nations which were there, the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, Hivites, Perizzites, and Gergesites, those were all people in the land and they were giants. And when the Jews started going into the land, they saw these individuals and they said, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. Now, most of the people back then, they probably would have been, most of the men, probably five, six, five, eight, maybe shorter. You wouldn't have these mammoth people like a, a football team for L or a basketball team for Los Angeles, something like the New York Knicks. You wouldn't have anybody like that at the time. Everybody was small. And so when they got into the land, could you imagine somebody who was five foot six to five foot eight coming across somebody who's nine to 10, 12 feet tall? The person that is the tallest person in the world was recorded was like 11 feet tall, but he had that gigantic uh, problem with the pituitary. He wasn't a full giant. He had something going haywire and he was 11 feet tall. I can't imagine the size shoe that he had to wear. Probably had to wear a car on each foot, you know, to to go wherever he wanted to go. But that was what the Jews were facing at that time. And then, of course, we know that uh, after Moses and Joshua died, the Jews did what was right in their own eyes. And so that's why the judges had to come along. And eventually King Saul came along, Saul, David, and Solomon. The kingdom split to north and south. And so that's the history that he's going to give here. Now, in verse 17, it says, The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt and with mighty power, he led them out of the country. He endured their conduct. You see that? He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. Remember when we went through Exodus? The people just complained constantly. And God wanted to destroy them and leave them. And Moses interceded and said no. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. So he gave him Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. 
After removing Saul, he made David the king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So not only is he informing the Gentiles, but he's telling the Jews, remember this. He wants them to recall what's going on. Verse 23, he then goes into the prophecy about the Messiah. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, what do you think or who do you think I am? I am not the one, but he is coming after me. Who sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, there's the second time it's listed, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet condemned him. They fulfilled, but in condemning him, they fulfilled the word of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Well, what words? were read every Sabbath. Of course, they'd read from the law and from the prophets. And things specifically that were talked about uh, that Paul would have been addressing here, for instance, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we have Palm Sunday coming up. And on Palm Sunday, Sunday, that was a fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. He gave the exact day in that prophecy when the Messiah would show himself to the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. It was 173,880 days after the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That was the day the triumphal entry took place on Palm Sunday. So the Jews in the time of Jesus should have recognized that the Messiah had shown up. But then it also was prophesied in that same chapter, a couple of verses later, that he would be cut off and have nothing which means he would die. So they should have known that Jesus, who was coming at a specific time, would also be killed. And, of course, we have uh, Psalm uh, 22 and Isaiah 53 that describe the crucifixion. So this is a testimony. I have to end here because we're running out of time. But it's this idea of God going to great lengths. He gets Paul saved so he would go to great lengths to be a witness to the Jews in other parts of the world and the Gentiles. And because Paul did that, we are saved. All the hundreds and hundreds of people, the thousands of people that are out there, all the writings that not only just the Bible, but the writings that are outside the Bible that speak of Jesus Christ. God has gone to a huge, extreme extent to get us saved how can we say no we don't want to be saved when God is true and he's told us what is going to be the case of mankind that we are all under a curse but we can be saved from that curse this is our job to take this message the message of the Messiah and Jesus Christ just like Paul did to the world my prayer for you is that you are able to do so with boldness that you know the word that you understand the history that you see those thousands and maybe even millions of people that have gone before us to carry on this gospel to the ends of the earth when we have the opportunities open the door if there's a door open in front of you walk through it and be praying for the baptism that's coming up if you're going to go to the baptism bring somebody that's not going to church bring somebody that is going to church you don't have to convince them to go to church elsewhere bring somebody that's not saved It'd be a great evangelistic outreach if you just had family members come or friends say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing on April 2nd? 
Let's go and get baptized or let's go watch somebody get baptized. And if you have any questions about God, we can do it. That is my prayer, that you guys would do that, that you would reach out. Father, we, we, we thank you for the word here. We thank you for Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and their faithfulness. We, are, we can't thank you enough for that, but we would ask that you would help us to be as faithful as they were in their day that we might give this salvation because we know there are bad things coming for those in this world and we want to bring comfort and healing to those who need it. So Father, use us, fill us with your spirit, help us to be your witness in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.